Welcome to the Boone's Creek Baptist Church podcast. We are a church that exists to spread God's glory from our neighbors to the nations. This is Pastor Tim Wade, and we pray that you will be blessed as we consider God's living, active, and all-sufficient Word together. Today we're going to be looking at yet another attack that Satan will level at the church, often through its own people, and often unwittingly, unknowingly. But nonetheless, it is a dangerous attack. And so I'd ask that you turn with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude, all the way at the end of the New Testament, right before Revelation. It's probably only about one page long in your Bible, so if you blink, you'll miss it. The book of Jude... Last week we began looking at the way that the Bible answers the question, where does disunity come from? We've been looking for the past several weeks at unity within the church and the need for unity. But you see, we have opposition. As we seek unity, Satan attempts to create disunity. And so we need to understand where disunity is going to come from, where it's going to work its way into the church so that we can make sure that we are preventing it where we are able, guarding against it when it arises, and that we have equipped ourselves with the armor of God, as we talked about at VBS this week, to to stand firm against Satan's temptations in these areas. Now, today I will confess to you that, that what we're going to talk about is a difficult subject because it's something that I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we are all guilty of to some degree or another. It's something that we all struggle with because it's something that we are all going to be tempted to participate in. Last week, we looked at two sources of disunity from, uh, from the book of James. He asks this very question, where does disunity come from? What causes quarrels among you? And, and we said last week, James provided... Two different sources, the disordered desires, the things that we want that exist within each of us, and then the tendency that we have to down-talk or talk bad about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And each of those sources are described by James as dangerous and divisive, something that can shipwreck a church. They are unholy, unchristian, and so we need to take them seriously. But those are not the only two sources of disunity. And so this morning, as we look in the book of Jude, we're going to see a few more sources of disunity that we need to guard against. The New Testament, again, warns of many things that threaten the unity of the church, but we'll look at these these three this week from this little letter of Jude. Again, if you're wondering why we're spending so much time talking about this, it's not. I, I, I continue to reiterate this. Nothing changed. This past week, I'm not aware of any disunity, any open conflict, any turmoil within the church. But that doesn't mean that we aren't vulnerable to it. That it can't arise at a moment's notice. That these seeds can't be sown even today before you leave this room. And they may not result in open conflict or outright warfare in the church. But those seeds can begin to blossom and grow into greater conflicts if we don't handle them right away. And so we need to be aware of this if we want to have unity. God, through the New Testament authors, 
thinks this is significant enough to give us multiple warnings, multiple exhortations to defend against these things. And we will never be what we need to be as a church if we do not have unity. As we said from the outset, before Jesus went to the cross, the thing that He prayed on the night that He was betrayed, as He gathered with His disciples for the Last Supper, the thing that Jesus prayed for was that they would be unified, not just His disciples, but all of those that would come after, believing on the Word that they proclaimed, which includes us. Jesus prayed for us on the night before He died. And one of the main things that He prayed for in that prayer was that we would be unified. So this was... This was foremost in Jesus' own mind, even before He went to the cross, that the church for which He shed His blood would be united together, that we would stamp out these sources of disunity. Because disunity jeopardizes our mission. And ultimately it makes a mockery of Christ's blood which He shed for each of us. If you're sitting here today as a believer, as a blood-bought Christian, then the same blood that saved you is the same blood that saved me. It's the same blood that makes us all sons and daughters, children of God. And that ought to supersede any difference that we might have with one another. And so we need to understand then how to live that way. How to stamp out sources of disunity. And so then I think this is certainly worth our consideration since such a heavy emphasis is placed on it in God's word. And so I would ask if you are able this morning that you please stand together with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God as we look at Jude, verses 16 through 19. There Jude writes to the church, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this warning that you've given us, how you've identified those that cause divisions, those that we should beware of because of their ungodliness and their propensity to stir up strife. Lord, I know that as we talk about this, I know right now that this is probably going to make some people upset. Lord, because your word is sharp as any two-edged sword dividing to the very division of joint and marrow. Lord, it's going to cleave our own hearts. I know it has cleaved mine as I've examined myself in light of your word. And so, Lord, I pray that as we examine ourselves and if if we find ourselves condemned by your word this morning, that we would not grow bitter, but that we would fall to our knees in repentance and embrace the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ. And then resolve to live in such a way as to bring him glory and honor through our love and our unity with one another. Make these things so for us, Lord, because we cannot make them so on our own. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
Before we start digging into these verses and and looking at these sources of disunity that Jude provides, let me give you just a little context for Jude. Jude is writing to the church in order to urge them to contend or to fight earnestly for the faith. He tells them that in verse 3. He said, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude is saying, church, I wish I could write good things to you. I wish that I could delight in our common salvation. But I found it necessary to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith. And why do you have to contend? Because there are sources of division among you. There are these wicked and ungodly people among you that is threatening to disrupt the unity and the mission then of the church. And so Jude's letter is intended to identify the characteristics of these divisive people and the danger that they pose to the church in order to warn the church and to preserve the unity of the church. Because Jude knows... James does too, we talked about last week, that we cannot contend earnestly for the faith. We cannot be effective as a church if we aren't unified. We can't accomplish our mission. And so in verses 16 through 19, he is marking out for us the activities that these ungodly people are participating in that are proving to be particularly problematic. Say that three times fast. Because as he says in verse 19, he says, they cause divisions. These things cause divisions among you. He begins this section in verse 16 by saying, these are, this is what these people are. These are who they are. So you need to identify them. You need to recognize them. And address the division that they're causing. You can spot these people by noting their activities. Because this is how they're going to make themselves known to you. So what then are these divisive behaviors that we need to be on the lookout for? Here's where it gets interesting. Because the very first thing that Jude lists is grumbling. Grumbling and complaining. Now we might think that Jude would list any number of things. These are the people that you know, are out participating in all sorts of debauchery and sinfulness. These are people that are participating in abhorrent sexual behaviors. These are the people that are embracing the the ways of the world. But he starts this list with grumbling. Now in your bulletin, uh, you may see in your notes that that I'd originally separated out grumbling and complaining. But I'm I'm actually just going to handle both of these things together. Because they're they're so closely related, I don't think it's helpful to try to, to... Separate them out. Scripture warns us against both of them. And so we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning camped out right here talking about grumbling and complaining because Scripture has a lot to say about this. And it's something that, frankly, we don't address enough. That we tolerate within our churches, within our homes. But as we're going to see today, it's something that's dangerous. It's something that's divisive. It's something that is not Christ-like. And so we need to address this. Grumbling and complaining may not seem like a big deal to most of us. 
We find it shocking, I think, that this is the first concern that Jude lists when he's warning this church. Because just look at the language that Jude has employed about these people, these divisive people. If you look back up in verse 15, um, Jude tells us that uh, God is coming to, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He uses the word ungodly four times. And then he says, what are they? These are grumblers. Ungodliness. Grumbling is ungodly. Complaining is ungodly. And that sounds harsh. But that's the words that Jude himself uses, inspired by God, to tell us, do not do this. We tend to downplay the sin of grumbling because I think it's one that we're particularly fond of. When we feel like we're getting the short end of the stick, we're not getting our just desserts, that's what we do. We grumble. We complain. We feel like that's the only recourse we have. We're upset when we think that we're doing more than our fair share and somebody else is not pulling their weight. We grumble when we don't think we're getting the attention that we deserve or someone isn't listening to our ideas, which is the best idea that's ever been ideated. We grumble. One commentator says of this kind of grumbling that Jude's talking about, I I love this description. He says this type of grumbling is a low murmuring, grunting like a fat swine. It's what we do when we are displeased. When we're upset, we grumble. Rather than going to the person that we're upset about or upset at, we grumble. We murmur in hushed voices in dark corners, grunting about all the injustices that's been done to us. Scowling at the supposed perpetrators of that injustice. Whether it's deacons, whether it's a pastor, whether it's the youth, whether it's the the seniors, whether it's this family or that individual. We grumble. We murmur. And we infect our hearers, the people that's hearing us grumble, with our divisive poison. We cause them to think less of that person because we're grumbling about them. This is a big deal. It's warned about throughout Scripture. Paul, like Jude, sees this kind of grumbling as a problem. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, he warns the church, just like Jude, about such grumbling. He tells us in verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now notice, all of this, Paul says, is because you're not grumbling. All of these things are accomplished because you are restraining yourself, you are refraining from grumbling. You are lights in the world, in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation. My ministry, Paul says, will not be in vain to the extent that you refrain from grumbling. 
And then verse 17, he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Being glad, rejoicing, it's the opposite of grumbling and complaining. And Paul says here, this is what you should be doing. This is the business of a Christian. To be glad and rejoice. And so he tells us to do all things without grumbling or complaining. Because when we do so, we are blameless. We are harmless. We are without fault, without blemish. We are like light shining in a darkened world. And so the inverse is also true. If you do all things while grumbling and complaining, you are blameworthy. You are harmful. You are with fault. You do not shine as a light, but you are darkened. Grumblers are not effective Christians because you cannot tell someone about the hope that you have in Jesus Christ and eternal life if they know you as a constant grumbler. Why would they listen to you about hope? Why would they listen to you about joy? If all they ever know from you is grumbling and complaining about this or that. What's interesting about this warning about grumbling then is that it shows us, especially here as as Paul talks about this, doing all things without grumbling and complaining, it shows us that the attitude in which we do something is what makes all the difference. Paul says when you do all things without grumbling and complaining, this is the result. If you grumble and complain as you do all things, then the opposite will also be true. So the attitude is the difference between honoring the Lord with your service and being someone that's destructive and divisive to the church. For example, two men could be standing side by side at the sink doing dishes. Or two men could occupy this space up here behind the pulpit preaching for that matter. And in either instance, they could be doing one of them could be doing the activity with joy and humility and gladness. The other could be doing that exact same activity while grumbling and murmuring and complaining. The former is godly and the latter is ungodly. You can do the exact same thing but in an ungodly way if you're doing it while murmuring and grumbling and complaining. It doesn't matter what the activity is, whether it's washing dishes, preaching, serving in VBS, scrubbing toilets, whatever it might be, if you're doing it with grumbling and complaining, you're not serving the Lord. Paul says to do all things. All things without grumbling or complaining. And here in Philippians, Paul even sets forth his own suffering as an example. He knows that he is about to be killed for his faith. He says he's going to be poured out as a, as a sacrifice for their faith. He has given his life literally so the gospel could go to the nations, to the Philippians. And he says, I will do that with gladness. I will rejoice alongside you. He says, I am glad to do this. I rejoice with you all. And so if Paul is able to give his own life without grumbling and complaining, if he is able to be glad and rejoice, we should be able to serve in whatever capacity we're called without grumbling and complaining. We should be able to clean toilets without grumbling and complaining. We should be able to cook 
without grumbling and complaining. We should be able to sing without grumbling and complaining. We should be able to help volunteer for VBS without grumbling and complaining, even if things aren't exactly how we would prefer them to be. Yeah, we're not always going to agree on the best way to do things. But we can still work together in unity without grumbling and complaining. Because when we do that, we place ourselves in the judge's seat. When we complain, we're basically saying, Lord, if I were in your shoes, I would have done this differently. Or we condemn our brother or sister for acting so boneheaded. Lord, why would you let them do it that way? If I was in charge, I would have done it a dozen different ways. And maybe you would. But that doesn't give us the right to participate in this kind of divisive behavior. We're displeased and so our displeasure must be voiced. So others can validate it with hearty affirmations. Yes, you are absolutely right. You would do such a better job. You were wronged in such an egregious way there. Shame on them. We need to see though that grumbling and complaining are not innocent little sins. Paul warns us also against grumbling and complaining in 1 Corinthians 10. I really want to drive this point home because we need to see the weight of this sin. We need to see first that it actually is a sin. And then the weight that Scripture places on us. On this sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, Now these things took place as examples for us. Talking about the Old Testament. That we may not desire evil as they did. And then listen to this catalog of sins. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. And were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now here in this, don't miss this, Paul is listing all the sins of the people in the wilderness, and there were a number of them. We're told that they committed idolatry. They worshipped a golden calf. Even as God had thundered His voice from the mountain. The people ignored him and worshipped this golden calf. They committed, they, they committed sexual immorality. We're told that they even tempted Christ. And alongside all of those sins, they complained. Now, we read through this and, and it doesn't always compute in our minds. But what Paul is saying is that this is just as bad as these other things. Because look at the end result. What's the end result of all of these sins? The people are judged. They are destroyed. They're wiped out. He says they grumbled and complained and they were destroyed by the destroyer. And so do not be deceived. One of the devil's most destructive lies is that your particular sin is no big deal. That person's sin, yeah, that's a big deal. You know, those people that you see on social media who's posting all the videos and you're like, how could they even think that way? How could they pursue those kind of depraved notions and ideas? Those people, they're the ones that's really bad. 
Satan wants us to think that our sin of grumbling and complaining is no big deal, but the Bible calls it evil, worthy of destruction. Satan's lied from the very beginning, told us our sin is no big deal. One little bite from the fruit won't hurt you. In the same way, everyone complains, what's the big deal? But we can see right here in God's Word what a big deal a little grumbling and complaining can be. It's listed alongside idolatry, tempting Christ, sexual immorality. Now most of you in here, I hope, wouldn't dream of committing sexual immorality. You wouldn't dream of cheating on your spouse. You find things like homosexuality repugnant. Yet we get into our groups with our friends and we complain and murmur and grumble. Pretending like the Bible doesn't call that sin too. We'll note how differently we would do things. How unfair something may be. How we wish that our circumstances were different. We'll complain about things in the church. Sermon is too long or too short. Actually, I've never in my life ever heard somebody complain that a sermon was too short. I think that would be a first if I heard that one. We don't sing enough hymns. We don't sing enough newer songs. The youth are always acting wild and crazy. The seniors are just a bunch of old fuddy-duddies that are standing in the way of me doing what I want to do. We can all find room to grumble. But when we hear it, we need to say, no, no, no. That's not okay. That's your brother. That's your sister. That's one for whom Christ died. We need to recognize it and not tolerate it, not participate in it. Not be quick to condemn certain more distasteful sins when we're unwilling to see this log in our own eyes. Again, lest you think I exaggerate, the end result of this kind of grumbling is that they were destroyed by the destroyer. Just like those who were destroyed by serpents or punished for other sins. All these sins that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians lead to the same result. That is destruction. And so he warns, he warns at the very end of this, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And he tells us these things were written down as examples for us. And so we, we read those stories and we say, okay, sexual immorality, check. I won't do that. Tempting Christ, check. I won't do that. Idolatry, I don't have a golden calf in my yard, check. I'm good. But when it comes to grumbling, we don't follow the example. We don't heed the warning that Paul tells us right here. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Now at this point you may be wondering, well, is it ever okay to recognize that things aren't how they should be? Of course. If someone has done wrong, if someone has committed a sin... If someone has committed an error that could be rectified by helpful feedback, then go to that person. Go to that person and tell them, listen, let's talk about this because I think there's a problem here. It doesn't require us to go to other people and complain about them. Also, we need to understand that we live in a world where circumstances aren't going to be right until Jesus comes back. We live in a world that is lost and broken, ruined by the fall. 
And so we shouldn't expect things to be okay. Circumstances to be the way that they should be. In fact, the Bible is full of lament of people acknowledging this very fact that things aren't like they should be because of sin. Philip read a psalm where David is attacked by enemies and he's recognizing that and he's crying out to God. Things are not like they should be in this world. And so the Bible actually gives us a template in 1 Peter 5 verses 6 and 7 for recognizing the fact that things aren't the way that they should be and then crying out to God. There we read, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him for He cares for you. Now notice the difference here. In this, we begin by humbling ourselves, recognizing who's in charge and not demanding what is ours by right and then casting our care upon Him. We need to see that there's a huge difference in complaining about God and casting our cares on God. We need to recognize that God wants to hear our concerns and cares. He has given us brothers and sisters to help us bear our burdens. So it's not that we can't ever be open and honest about our circumstances, but we need to share that information with humility. Not complaining about what God has done in our lives and the bad circumstances. You may think, well, I never complain about God. I never say, how dare God do this? But we complain about our circumstances. We forget who the king is that has numbered our days and counted the hairs on our head. So we need to cast our cares on God, not complain about him, not complain about one another. Now, before we move on, we've got a couple more things and I'm going to hit these very quickly because I told you I was going to spend most of our time this morning on this because frankly, we just don't talk about this in churches. We don't address this. And it's to our detriment because that means we allow it to go on and on and on. And Jude says it's divisive. It's going to destroy the church. Paul says it's going to lead to your destruction. We just need to recognize this is a sin. And not tolerate it. These other things we've talked about already to some extent. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Jude tells us, That another divisive thing, another characteristic of these divisive people is that they are lustful, that they have desires, they have ungodly desires, sinful desires. And we talked about this at at great length last week. This is what James focuses on, the fact that we want something. And so we ask and we don't get it because we ask amiss. We fight and quarrel with one another. These two little words, I want are deadly. They're destructive. They're divisive. Because it's elevating ourselves and saying, this is what I demand. And so we need to be careful with our desires and recognize when our desires are getting out of line. When our desires are not lining up with God's Word. Because this can cause division. The last thing I want to to talk about here from Jude is that Jude mentions flattery as a mark of the ungodly. The problem with flattery is that none of us really like to call out flattery because we like it when we're flattered. We want it to be true, even if we know that it isn't. But we need to beware. We're warned, even in the Old Testament, in Proverbs 
that a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. So we need to understand, flattery is never free. The flatterer has an agenda. They want something from you. So they are flattering you, puffing you up, in order to get something from you. To garner influence with you. To draw you into their corner. Only to reveal later what their flattery actually costs. What it is that they're expecting from you. It's a net that entraps you like a lamb to the slaughter. We go willingly. Because we like to hear good things about ourselves. And so again, does this mean that we can never say something good about another person? Well, of course not. The Bible tells us that we should be able to encourage one another. But do so without flattering. And we should know the difference. Because encouragement will often affirm what God is doing in someone's life. How we can see the Lord working and causing them to grow and develop into the man or woman that they ought to be. The attention isn't just on them. In fact, encouragement, true biblical encouragement, will also often refocus someone's attention off of their own lives onto the Lord. Because we're able to see what God is doing in our lives. Flattery, on the other hand, will draw our attention away from Christ and onto ourselves. It's meant to boost our egos. Whereas encouragement will boost our faith. One is expected of the Christian to encourage one another. The other is divisive, destructive, Jude says. And so we are warned in Scripture and other places in James to not show favoritism to individuals. Flattery attempts to gain favoritism. It's divisive because it places the interest of the individual above the interest of the church and above interest of God and His kingdom. The flatterer wants to advance their own cause, their own agenda by drawing attention away from Christ. That's ultimately what the serpent did in the garden. right? He comes to Adam and Eve and he flatters them and he says, Listen, you could be like God. Why are you listening to what God says? You, you've got it within yourself to be like God. To know good and evil. He suggested that God was actually holding them back. So flattery initially divided man from God. And it will divide us from one another as well. So do not underestimate the power of flattery to divide you from one another. We need to see that this list of sins, it's not some innocent thing that we can toy around with. We're expecting Jude to bring out the big guns here and talk about some really awful, heinous things that people might do to cause divisions. And he says, it's just the people that grumble and the people that flatter, the people that have sinful desires and passions. That's who we need to watch out for. I'm convinced that churches today are weak and divided because they haven't taken seriously these sins that God and His Word takes very seriously. All this week at VBS, we taught our children again how to defend themselves against attacks from Satan by putting on the whole armor of God. And so we as adults can't afford to be any less vigilant against sins of grumbling, complaining, lustful desires, and flattery. These sins, Jude warns, is how Satan will sow division within the church. It's how he will attack us because he knows that we are vulnerable, we are susceptible to these things. 
We defend against these first and foremost by looking to Christ. Christ was exemplary in every area. He never grumbled nor complained. Isaiah tells us in his prophecy, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its ears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. If anyone ever had the right to be able to complain about being treated unfairly, it was Jesus. And yet he refused to do so. He refused to give in to that temptation. He was tempted directly by Satan, yet without lustful desire. He did not flatter the Pharisees and the people in authority that came to him, yet he spoke the truth at every occasion. He did not try to curry favor with the world. Jesus alone met the standard where we all fall short. But not only did He meet it for us, He also paid for our failure to meet it. So that as He went to the cross, He did so to take our failings. He took our grumblings, our flattery, our willingness to listen to flattery, our lustful desires. He took all those on Himself. Because these sins make us worthy of destruction, according to Paul. Just like they made the people in the Old Testament worthy of destruction, and they were destroyed. Jesus was sent to the cross to take our destruction on Himself for our sins of grumbling and complaining. So that as we trust Christ for the work that He has done on our behalf, He not only pays for our sins, but He also gives us His righteousness that He achieved by not grumbling and complaining, by not flattering. So that in salvation, as Christians, there's an exchange that takes place. He takes our grumbling, our complaining, our flattery, our lustful desires, He pays for them, and He gives us His righteousness that He earned. And so if you today realize that you are a grumbler, a complainer, a flatterer, that you've never trusted Christ for the forgiveness of those sins, then today is the day for you to repent and trust Christ. Maybe you have trusted Christ, but you realize that you've allowed Satan to attack you and weaken you and allow you to be a divisive person because of these things. Then today is the day for you to repent and say, Jesus, I have done wrong. Please forgive me. Help me to not be a source of division. If you'd like to know how you can do that, if you would like help repenting or breaking this habit in your life, if you'd like help knowing the gospel, how you can trust Christ for the very first time, then here in just a moment, I'd encourage you to come and and speak with me. I'd be happy to talk with you about how that can be true of you. And I hope that as a church, we can go forward together, realizing that when these things happen, hopefully we can catch them before the words ever leave our mouths. When we start to grumble and murmur or flatter, we realize... I'm walking down a dangerous path. I don't need to do that. Maybe our spouses, maybe our children, maybe our parents, maybe our friends can help us with that. Help us realize where we're failing to meet the standard. Help us realize when we're participating in ungodly speech and ungodly activities. Because as we realize that and as we walk forward without all of those temptations and attacks from Satan, we're going to walk forward more united stronger, more readily able to accomplish the mission that God has given this church. Let's pray.
God, we thank You for Your Word and the truth that it conveys. I know that today it may be a painful truth. Because, Lord, even I confess that I am guilty of this. I'm guilty of thinking that things aren't going my way and so I should complain about them. I wish that they would be better. I wish that they would be different. And so I feel entitled to complain. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I pray that we would all desire repentance and faithfulness in this area. Help us to honor You with our lips, to love one another, and to rejoice and be glad in all things that we do without grumbling or complaining. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about today's sermon or would like more information about Boone's Creek Baptist Church, you can send us an email at boonscreekchurch at gmail.com or you can give us a call at 859-263-5466. You can also find us online at www.boonscreekchurch.com. Thank you and have a blessed day.